stories of so many very courageous women that were like fighting for their rights. The story of, of the story and the architecture of oppressive systems. That was my my start in, in realizing that you know technology is when in the hands of people, it is such a powerful force that can bring accountability, that can bring visibility, that can bring recognition of people who have been excluded. This is Purple Code, a podcast about intersectional feminist perspectives on digital societies. And we are Lena, Bianca and Sana. And we have our uh, guest today with us, um, Renata Avila. Hi, Renata. Uh, hi, how are you? Hey, we are good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very um, rainy outside in Berlin. I hope in Paris, where you are right now, it looks better. You have some sun at least. At least, but you know, I, I am not optimist. It's not going to last. But I guess that is, is the beauty of the seasons. And this is a new, a new year. And I'm very excited to be with you, uh, uh, girls. And I cannot wait to get into the conversation about uh, purple code and all the things that we are going to discuss today. This is amazing, Renata. Thanks so much for accepting our invitation. I know how busy you are because you're also doing so, so, so many projects and great work. And um, I'm always impressed by your, you know, your force or for the force behind uh, your actions. When you enter a room, everybody is just uh, <laughs> fascinated by your presence. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember uh, you last summer, we met again uh, in Berlin at a conference of the Weizenbaum uh, Institute, uh, Practicing Sovereignty, that, that I was uh, organizing. And uh, you draw, um, yeah, um, very, very strong picture of the internet today. You should probably remember, I remember it very vividly, um, the picture of the broken house. And uh, I will explain it later and why I think it's still important for us, for, for also our episode today. But first, let me introduce you a bit, Renata, because um, uh, first of all, you are a lawyer and an activist, right? Um, and you are originally from Guatemala? Correct, correct. You are right now the CEO of the Open Knowledge Foundation, um, and we will. I, I hope you can you, you can tell us and our listeners a bit about this uh, structure of the Open Knowledge Foundation, and what I found interesting when uh, how they presented you also uh, on the website as a new CEO was that uh, what you do you build a network of networks, and uh, that was uh, actually very interesting. And this would be also uh, one thing that. Um, we can talk about, we should talk about. Uh, one of the main topics for us in uh, relation to you, your work, your research, your biography is digital colonialism. And um, I know that you also wrote and published uh, upon digital colonialism and uh, digital sovereignty. And I think this will be the the main uh, two uh, dimensions that will will bother us today in our conversation. Uh, what you also did as a lawyer and activist, uh, you were part of the team that defended Julian, or still defends, I don't know exactly, uh, Julian Assange and uh, WikiLeaks, but you also, which is also a very, very, in, in Germany also very known um, case, let's say, and worldwide, but um, you also defended Rigoberta Menchu. I hope uh, I speak it correctly, the name, which is a Nobel Absolutely Prize Absolutely correctly. Yeah. Absolutely, yes, spotless, yeah. <laughs> She's a prominent indigenous leader. Um, and uh, maybe we start with this. Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, like, uh, I would love to start with uh, Rigoberta. Uh, Rigoberta Menchu, tomb. Uh, she, she's uh, the first... Uh, Nobel Peace Prize from Guatemala, and it, she was. Mm. If we if we can if we want to situate the audience 
in in context, you know, it was as impactful as the uh, Malala's uh, Nobel Prize at that time in 1992, you know, like because yeah. till then indigenous girls and women were absolutely invisible for mainstream media. Of course, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have many things, but it is, uh, and I would love to start here because uh, it is it helped us put all the rest in perspective. Uh, uh, when you are the most excluded in a society, you know, like it takes a big um, act, a big recognition to make you visible and to make you count for the decisions. And I think that the uh, Nobel Prize Committee, it was not only because of her hard work, you know, she was born and I have visited the village many times in a village without electricity, Mm -hmm. basic services. And and she like struggled all the way to be one of the most important brokers of peace uh, after a brutal uh, civil war that led to genocide of her people in my country. So when she was awarded the Nobel Prize, uh, suddenly the tragedy of lots of indigenous girls and women became visible to the mainstream. Mm. And, and I guess that, you know, like uh, having these positive gestures, when you make a reality visible and tangible uh, from the periphery to the mainstream, uh, from the periphery to the centers of power, it is, it is a great move. Now, uh, one of the things is a very interesting thing uh, that it, through the years, you know, like, of course, Nobel Prize gets a lot of support and community building and so on. So uh, we started to see in the early and late 90s and early 2000s, you know, like a, a converging discourse on um, indigenous sovereignty, uh, mm-hmm. food sovereignty, and technology sovereignty. So uh, back then, you know, like uh, like almost at the same time, you know, like the internet was taking off. Uh, the conversations about having our having and shaping our own tools, and and having and shaping uh, uh, our own, uh, you know, like being represented in the technologies that were built in the future. It was part of the conversation. It was also a big moment for community radio. I mean, the still connectivity was very low, but the idea of our right to communicate with others and our right to speak our languages and our right to exist as we are, as a diverse collective, uh, it, was, it was very loud at that time. Uh, uh, and at the same time, a converging, you know, like a conscience in um, our food, and taking care of the of the food to stay in, as as uh, uh, geeky people say, open source. Like you know, not <laughs> have like a, a not have locked the possibility to reproduce the seeds on limited times. I mean, and uh, the conversations around uh, speaking our languages were like very active. I, I guess that that is very interesting because it is the same conversations that we are having today with technology. One of the things mm. that um, uh, she did, one of the very first things that she did uh, with the Nobel Prize while I was working with her, in parallel, I was working on the legal case and it was very tragic and it was terrible. Uh, but uh, mm. two things that uh, come to my mind is the first thing next to me, that was the, it was the education unit of her foundation. And they were de- doing both connectivity programs and uh, software and coding in their own languages programs. Uh-huh. It was like early 2000s, you know, like. And, and, the, and the second thing that comes to my mind is that my actions, my activities as a human rights lawyer were really, really, really um, assisted by something that now sounds like, oh my God, it, it usually only has a negative connotation which was uh, data processing of the victims and creating profiles. We have massive, we have massive, massive, massive information of uh, victims, basically. And uh, thanks uh, with the assistance of, uh, you know, like some techies and like a company, uh, the public interest company, technology company called Venetech at that time that was based in San Francisco, 
by processing all the data we had on how people like was how the indigenous women were raped, how uh, how the the kids were brutally murdered, and all the processes by processing the big data at that time it was very rudimentary, right? We found a pattern, and that pattern. Like, you know, uh, we found a profile. What would be like the profile of the person being assassinated by the army? And we found a pattern of behavior of the armed forces. And that was key evidence uh, in proving that a genocide was perpetrated against indigenous communities and that within that, that crime, uh, that it was spe- specifically brut- brutal against women, uh, rape as a crime of war and rape as a, a, a form of uh, the, one of the most brutal, brutal forms of torture perpetrated by, by an army. And it was data, data, data back then, you know, like it was, uh, of course, today, I can only imagine the sophistication of the tools that the International Criminal Court and other courts are using, but it was, it was uh, a way to, um, you know, translate the massive amounts of data of a totally terrible tragedy into concrete forms of recognition of, uh, like, it, it helped us uh, assess and frame the behavior that it seemed incomprehensible into something coherent and accessible for the courts. And sorry about the long, 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 long mm-hmm. answer, but that that was my my start in in realizing that you know technology is at the same t- time when in the hands of people it is such a powerful force that can bring accountability, that can bring visibility, that can bring recognition of people who have been excluded. Hmm. Thank you, Renata. This is. Um it sounds terrible, but also the way it was sort of responded to by by the community and, and documenting it. I'm just thinking about how did people do it? And, you know, where was this data collected? Did they also have to be, I don't know, given some training or there were more sort of like, I don't know, experimental ways of collecting data? So what I'm trying to ask is how it was being done, what were the mediums and where it was being stored. And I'm asking this because in India, we also have massive human rights violations of indigenous people, whether in Kashmir, whether in, you know, the central belt of India um, and elsewhere, you know, and and they there hasn't been much sort of like recording and documentation and archiving of of the human rights abuses. I know people who are trying to do it in Kashmir. I know human rights activists, filmmakers who've been trying to do it um, and even uh, sort of in a community-based response. But it's just so difficult in terms of the the government that they're dealing with, uh, where they store that information, who are the people doing it, just their security and safety. So... Yeah, I mean, if you could tell us a little bit more, uh, more on that front. Oh my God, I could spend like you know the entire like hours speaking about it. But something, uh, some important, like you know, like uh, with the knowledge I have today, and uh, without being harsh of how things were done at a very different moment of both technology and privacy and security awareness, um, um, because it was you know like early two thousands. Uh, one of the things that we uh, like, one of the things that had been done is very. It was very difficult. It was the transition between uh, uh, from analog documents. There were, hmm. It was a dump of documents. You know, like you will enter this room, and it was like pages and pages of dispersed documents with no coherence. So it was an intense process of digitization of those documents. Uh, at a moment that, you know, storing documents was quite expensive and, and that digitizing documents was quite difficult. I mean, it was not, it was not the time that everybody had, like, you know, a, a, a sophisticated camera in their telephones, you know, mm. like, and, and the protocols around documentation were not still yet to be developed. Uh, so it was like a, a little bit like hard work of um, a, a team of volunteers mm. and, and human rights defenders on digitizing. Because the interesting thing is that this th- the, the crimes were perpetrated in the 80s. So we were dealing with 
very old material, very old archives, voice records, uh, and so on. And so sometimes you couldn't you couldn't even find the authorization of the victim of using the using the the testimony, and it was that was part of the complication of validating the information because. As it is happening now, I guess, in many of the wars affecting the world, hmm. what would you have is a very, like, you know, burned um, um, archives. Uh, that's the first thing that usually in a war that is trying to destroy a group. It happens, like, you know, uh, the, the civil registry is burned completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then if you cannot cross check with the people you can eliminate people without like you know them being counted and and the, uh, so it, it, many of them were like they, they they left the country they were refugees in mexico hmm. we couldn't ha- get hold of them many of them changed their names and and it was it was very difficult and 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 uh, how it was done you know like a, 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 with very rudimentary scanners and and with the tapes, because we had like hours and hours and hours of testimonies hmm. recorded in like uh, cassettes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was a little bit easier because it was like a, a big piracy industry in Guatemala, and the pirates were like very 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 good at transforming old record old cassettes into into CDs mm-hmm. at the time. And mm-hmm. we had uh, like some help. From I also remember these times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, they were like great help. You know, yeah. like. And then, and then, uh, you know, like it's stored in something like more or less digital. Hmm. But it was very interesting. Like if, if for the European audience at that time, that decade, late 90s, early 2000s, it was a big boom on accountability by, in, in different countries in Latin America, hmm. Chile, Argentina, and so on, were like prosecuting like the perpetrators of the Plan Condor. And... One thing that I want to reflect today is that men, like the impermanence of the human rights internet and the lack of support of archives uh, when we discuss human rights violations. Many of the websites of the late 90s, early 2000s, documenting all these this, this historical wins hmm. uh, are gone. Nobody archived them. All the document, or many of the documentation, very useful documentation around human rights abuses uh, and the battle for accountability, just vanished. Mm. Any of the documentaries that you you mentioned, for example, you know, like is uh, is is quite tragic because many of the documentaries. I mean, one thing is, uh, you know, you will do like a, a very good, well-intentioned, like, I don't know, Nordic filmmakers will go to a village in Guatemala and do a very mm-hmm. detailed uh, documentary about the tragedies, but that, that the footage will belong to the, I don't know, public station in a country completely inaccessible for the victims. Yeah. And they will not even leave a copy for authorized use and reproduction mm. in the country affected by the tragedy. So that leads me somehow to the work that we are doing at the Open Knowledge Foundation, because what we mm-hmm. have realized um, early when this kind of organizations started, you know, like uh, it was about the magic, you know, like, oh my God, I can reproduce unlimited number of copies uh, at no cost, and I can spread knowledge everywhere. Now, what we are seeing 20 years after, you know, almost 20 years after, is the same way that we are seeing uh, an extinction on uh, our environment, basically. The same way we are seeing an extinction on the, on the very valuable content. Mm-hmm. And that uh, idea of public interest accessibility of materials that are relevant in the public interest, mm-hmm. promoted not only by, you know, anachronic copyright laws, uh, limited exceptions and limitations that will uh, enable us to share broadly these very important materials, uh, restrictions, geolocation, uh, geographical restrictions on what is accessible for someone, and, uh, I mean, precarity, because our countries and our civil societies, uh, civil society organizations didn't develop a way to uh, 
have a, you know, a federated, decentralized way of store the valuable pieces of digital work that are now, uh, that I consider, you know, like a pieces of memory and important lessons that we have learned in the last 20 years. Um, so that's, a, that's a, you know, a reflection on the work that this is still pending on formats and storing and sharing and preserving knowledge and taking responsibility for that. Storytelling can be so radical at times, right? And and the way you're describing it uh, proves that. Uh, Renata, I was wondering, uh, this just uh, this conclusion you just gave uh, is so dire. Um, you said there are no ways, or contemporary societies haven't really found a way to store important knowledge in a federated way. So why do you come to this conclusion? I'm asking because um, my impression is that there's so many um, projects, um, for example, civil society authorized data banks that try to record human rights abuse and um, archives and, and storage. And I understand that what you did was a conclusion more on a, on a you know, from the bird's perspective. Um, but why, why is it yeah, so pessimistic? Let me, let, me, let me tell you, like, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible reality check. Uh-huh. Um, uh, for example, the United Nations invested, like, a lot of money in um, a truth commission in Guatemala and El Salvador. Yeah. And the truth commissions were like very sophisticated by their time, you know, in digitizing and collecting evidence of terrible human rights abuses, uh, boxes and boxes and boxes of documents. It is still the rule, you know, like all those all those boxes. I don't have the right to access them mm-hmm. because part of the uh, part of the peace deals in many many countries. Uh, uh, part of the peace deal is that. Uh, memory and reconciliation. Reconciliation is more valuable than memory. So I wouldn't have access to those files until probably I, it was uh, an embargo of 50 years. So probably only in 20 something years I will have access to those files when all the perpetrators are dead and their families, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, many generations passed. In the case of the Salvadorians, they have no right to access it ever. Imagine that. And that, that you know, like it, it, it is very interesting as well on the storing, recording and making repositories available globally. We have something that is tricky is that, of course, the, probably there are good copies, digital copies of many of the documentaries uh, documenting the, the Guatemalan genocide, documenting the, the many of uh, human rights abuses, but they live in archives that are only accessible you know, due to geolocation. If I want to see like the Cinematheque of a Swedish uh, public television, uh, and uh, just a random example, you know, it's highly likely that I will not be able to access it because of geolocation restrictions, right. the same way I cannot access the BBC in London, mm-hmm. even though they have, have great content. So we made something very dumb with the internet of mm-hmm. erecting barriers, mm-hmm. uh, geo- ge- geographical barriers on content, just for profit, you know, or control. And that means that we lost the, the, the resilience, the resilience of decentralized uh, content situated in many, in many jurisdictions at the same time, you know, the mirror effect. And of course, you need to be savvy and you need to know how to use a VPN and many other tricks to be able to circumvent that now because the internet knows where are you connecting from. Hmm. And also the permanence, I, I guess that, you know, having global, globally accessible archives Uh, and the archive not knowing where you are accessing it from. It was a very powerful, very powerful tool against censorship and against curation curation of, of content because, um, of course, uh, probably if I have all that content back home where the tensions are still active and the tension, racial tensions as well, probably they will shut down, burn completely the building. <laughs> And, and or I, I will suffer like lots of attacks 
online, you know, mm. uh, to make the content inaccessible. I mean, we are seeing it very recently, you know, <laughs> with a documentary of the BBC on Maldi. Uh, it's, it's, it's happening still, you know, controlling access to critical information that might, like, you know, change the opinion on people. And history is everything. And it, it seems that, you know, like uh, we are living very ahistorical times. If I think, for example, of Ch- ChatGPT, mm. and I think that the information that shaped it, uh, it, it breaks my heart to think that all the information of all the uh, human rights abuses that were like, you know, like available online 10 years ago is no longer available because, you know, the systems are not taken into account very important, uh, you know, segments of reality that were like, you know, validated and legitimate at, at that time. And, you know, like uh, it, it was the transition or like uh, uh, the uh, transition into a more sophisticated set of platforms uh, makes that, for example, many of the human rights organizations move to closed uh, platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and so on because it did, because of the fallacy of is what the people is and, and many uh, uh, lost control of their data, therefore, and lost control, uh, of course, uh, and not uh, not uh, cross-pollinating all their efforts in the open web to to teach the systems of the future and feed and tell, tell the part of the story. Many of the other uh, of the other like you know websites, including websites I was checking every day <laughs> twenty years ago, are uh, completely gone. Uh, they didn't survive the transition to from um, insecure to HTTPS, you know, to the protocol that uh, enables the the your connection to be encrypted, and and so you know, like it it is, it seems that we have a lot of information, uh, but the both the platform phenomenon, the ge- and the geolocation phenomenon, uh, restrict our ability to really truly connect to a global system. And mm. yeah, we have a, an extinction every every other day. A, a valuable website is on the in, on the public interest is gone because you know it's, it's not a trending topic anymore. It's not like the sexy thing anymore. Like uh, the person ha- who has man- maintained it like fifteen years cannot afford anymore to pay for the hosting, or the person, uh, or it is so old and it's, it's checked so few times that it's punished by the algorithm being buried as irrelevant so the person as, as uh, the person's managing them assume oh nobody is visiting is no longer needed mm. and we don't have a, a procedure to rescue this kind of information if, and if we look at that you know like at the angle of uh, uh, this podcast and what you were mentioning earlier of um, storytelling you know like it is uh, the, the stories of so many very courageous women that were like fighting for their rights. The story of, of the story and the architecture of oppressive systems that uh, led to like, you know, like a uh, lots of live uh, lives being lost. And, and from their, from their is, own perspectives, right? Like it, it is what, what we are living now, you know, like when I look at the, the, the conflicts, in Israel and Palestine, in, in, in Ukraine and Russia, in DR, in DRC, you know, in many places about in Mali, I see what happened in my country, you know, like, and I, it, it seems that, you know, like, uh, now we have the ability to look at the conflicts of the past, be horrified and, and understand uh, all that took to over, uh, overcome them. And it seems that the only reference, you know, is the two big European wars. It's like the, all the other conflicts didn't exist, and mm. and with the with the help of technology, actually, instead of you know, like uh, instead of we could we could see the evidence, very fresh evidence, and very fresh methods on how uh, you know civilians, how survivors of this of these conflicts. Uh, you know, challenge uh, those in power and brought, uh, brokered peace. And I think that those very important lessons are like, you know, diluted 
uh, if you cannot have, I mean, you can argue, oh, yes, we have Wikipedia. I think that it is not enough. And I think that if you are like a, uh, if you are like suffering, like, you know, from and, and dealing with these cases, like, for example, uh, me as a young lawyer, I use many of these cases, as uh, the cases of Chile. Uh, and the and the cases in the former Yugoslavia as a template mm-hmm. to many of my arguments uh, that I was using uh, uh, pushing forward, and it was not the sophisticated legal argument. It was the stories of people that were told and communicated by internet that uh, made my work much easier. So it's a content. Uh, it's not only data, you know, in data sets. It's about content uh, in context shared globally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like not a digital um, uh, uh, sort of tale, but yesterday I saw a, a documentary about about looting from from museums from Algeria and Egypt and Tunisia and the North African sort of belt, and and how those sort of like. Um, you know the the pieces of people's lives and histories were brought in europe and 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 what does it mean now to return to them you know return back those sort of like artifacts and those those things back i mean there was so much stories involved there were so many sort of like you know um, it brings into question it it made me think a lot about and it was done by this wonderful director um, uh, from Israel, Palestine. She calls herself Palestinian. She lives in uh, the US, teaches at Princeton. And she talked a lot about what it means for for artifacts and what does it mean for remembering something, right? From whose perspective is it? The, the photographs that were taken, the the sort of structures that were, that were sort of like the sculptures that were made. Uh, what was it representing? Who's, uh, you know, did it really represent the lifestyle of people? Did it really represent how people lived etc and what does it mean to return back you know do people want it back you know etc etc and then you have people who come from these places and but they still cannot sort of like you know express their identities they're asked to sort of mold in a certain way to look European etc so I think archival documentation this is a very analog example but um, I, have, I have a digital one I have a digital yeah, one actually. please tell yes, us just some <laughs> yeah. point you know like one of the things that with my team at the Open Foundation we were discussing is how to connect, um, uh, you know, the importance uh, for not only indigenous people, but, you know, for local communities, how objects, um, art objects are connected to a territory and also also are connected to a natural and nature and a natural ecosystem. Uh, and we wanted, like, you know, we want to start experimenting with uh, an open, uh, opening up uh, all the XR of the extended reality things to try to make people, you know, outside these communities and outside the indigenous communities see the connect, not, not to see, like, you know, the galleries uh, and museums as something like uh, something that, you know, passive. So, but what happens when you see the object in context? Hmm. What happens when you interact with the object in context and you see the people, the people like, you know, in the case of my racist country, you know, like the the people that many people, uh, I think that this disconnection, you know, you rarely see the connection past and present. When you go to an anthropology museum uh, or a history museum, we miss the link on where the, the people... They are, they, they, you know, like the, it's their heritage, right? And, and and so we want to experiment with that a little bit, but also connected with the, with the climate crisis, you know, like and how how you know, like uh, so many of these pieces or so many of the selection of materials even made sense locally. And instead of the exotification of saying, "Oh my God, they were they were like talking in the past," that they, they, in the case of Guatemala, is the Mayas. Hmm. All the time, the past and the Mayans of the past are associated with sophisticated scientific knowledge and sophisticated taste and sophisticated uh, high culture, as it is called. And they are pretty much alive and living in among us and interacting with us every day. But the, the, recon- the disconnect on how history is told 
uh, it, it produces that. And I think this is some, some of the, paradoxically, you know, some of the things that new technologies can help fix in, a, uh, in an accelerated way. Uh, I think that, we're, that uh, with imagination, we can create new, new, new virtual spaces of uh, recognition, re uh, dignification made by the people who had a different story to tell. Uh, and I am I'm, I'm very happy, you know, like in, in many countries in Latin America, we are having the first or even second generation of the indigenous anthropologists. So it's the first time, you know, like if we are like at the same time, you know, it, the, the world like feels like, you know, it's falling apart and extincting, it's about to be extinct. But at the same time, there's a lot of new things going on. And one of the new things is how it happens when um, we have a new generation of uh, anthropologists and archaeologists from the indigenous communities. And how, as you correctly said, you know, like the history that a piece of, uh, you know, a pottery uh, uh, tells them is absolutely different than from when we had the British explorer coming like, <laughs> hundred years ago uh, and looting, uh, looting the things to bring. It's funny that they're still called objects, the explorer, uh, yeah, huh? Yeah, they were exploring yeah. our lands. But the same happens with digital, you know, like I think that, I think that it's a great lesson. It's, a, it's an absolutely great lesson that... Uh, Technology is a tool, and many of the things that we do with technology are crafts uh, that will take different shapes uh, in, depending on, on who's shaping them. And now we have this uh, so bad monocultured, like you know, like uh, one one size fits all, one taste feel fits all, it pleases all. Uh, experience with technology and it can be something so amazing and so like you know like uh, so um you know it could really shape our society in uh, different technologies could shape our societies societal experiences in different ways and uh, it is like a, cri a crisis of imagination because for many of the things you don't need millions of investment you just need certain level of literacy uh, uh, and uh, certain, some structures of support and the encouragement of creating uh, things that will serve your communities, your local communities. That was what, what, what we always discuss with Bianca, you know, on the design aspect of, of things. Uh, uh, we, I think that uh, we share the, the hope, uh, hopefulness and the enthusiasm of creating new words from scratch, creating mm -hmm. new forms of engaging with technology from scratch hmm. and involving women and diverse women and the women yeah. who disagree among each other, even, you know, like while building them uh, uh, at the table, you know, like I have this, uh, like forgetting about the monoculture, uh, mono, uh, you know, like, you know, like yeah. forgetting about, you know, it's just this boring, super, like, you know, need green grass and letting letting the gardens of our creations of technology go wild. So, Renata, uh, when I listen to you speak, it, it strikes me how at the same time you're super, super critical towards the way well, the world uh, goes and societies uh, act. And at the same time, you're super visionary. So... Maybe asking you concerning the current projects in which you're involved and also this relatively new position you've taken on at the Knowledge Foundation. So what's the stuff that you think you can do or where you can, you know, give impulses to how things develop? The first is opening the debate, you know, like, uh, and mm. uh, the th it, 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 it's a, a very interesting tension going on now on openness. Openness, it's a lot of, uh, many times equated with open washing, with extractivism, with a very, very negative connotations. And I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that the same way that I was discussing that, you know, like the, this borderless archives thing, I'm absolutely convinced that openness is a universal principle hmm. that uh, leads, uh, like, you know, like, uh, lead, uh, <laughs> 
I mean, our nature is open source, you know, like, uh, it is, is a, I believe it is a universal principle, but, but to arri- arrive to that conclusion, we need to have the debates that we didn't have when openness was applied to technology uh, back in the mid-2000s, uh, uh, mid-2000s, uh, like the first decade, you know, like uh, uh, that we started, uh, it was so reductive, the debate back then, because it was reduced to licenses and formats. And now we have very interesting questions on, is it truly open if it's not participatory? Is it truly open if it's not including? Uh, is it truly open if, uh, if uh, I cannot know the, how the data set was you know, collected? It, it is, is it truly open if I don't know the ingredients that are being used to shape this mod- AI model even, you know, like a, and and I think that you know, like uh, uh, one of my objectives of this year is opening that opening the open <laughs> debate, so we can we can you know like revisit what we mean when we when we like re- revisit the open definition that the Open Knowledge Foundation coined. Oh my, oh my God! When I saw like you know the the people involved, they're like among the most generous and brilliant. Um, data scientists and engineers and experts, but they were like uh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly elite male. Mm. And, and I understand. I mean, that doesn't make them bad persons, and that doesn't make their like you know contributions super valuable. But I'm very curious what will happen when we try to redefine the open definition from different uh, set of uh, from the, the different like you know places where the people the people's feet are like you know standing <laughs> basically like you know like uh, is 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 uh, that's part of the work that I'm, I'm trying to do the other thing is decolonizing standards if you look at the way that uh, technology standards are uh, uh, and in general standards are made globally it's horrifying it is uh, and the third thing is being like less obsessed with very sophisticated technologies being created by my tech team and more concerned about connecting my technology team, the technology team at the, at the Open Knowledge Foundation with, we want to become an enabler organization of other organizations doing like the frontline work. Uh, for example, we want to know like, you know, like what, and what an organization uh, dealing with climate crisis or with food crisis needs. What do they need from us? What will make, you know, like the work exponentially better? <laughs> and if yeah. it's even better, if it's a general solution that can serve many communities at the same time, then that no one else is willing to, to work on because there's no revenue, there's no market for it, you know, but it is a, a substantial uh, public interest value on it. So that's where my plans are at the moment. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really great, Renata. And I mean, this is a very, very strong um, position uh, that you are taking in uh, op- to, to open up the, the, the open already, you know, so <laughs> this also includes for me very much to uh, constantly reflect upon our decisions and our own way of doing stuff and things because we all have our also blind spots and then um, to... <clears throat> Uh, revisit it again uh, in order to be able to decolonize uh, standards, as you said. And um, I, I find it fascinating, the conflict between nor- yeah, finding norms and standards with respect, for instance, to ethics and AI that are universal. Um, this is some something that um, is said uh, at least on a European level on the one hand, but but actually it's much more important and interesting to to take into account the local context, geographies, territories, the uh, the the situatedness of digital technologies. Actually, so how would you see? Uh, is that a conflict in between? I mean, I talked to, um, for instance, yesterday with a director of the. Uh, IEEE, uh, Clara Neppel, about that, because they are very much into like, it's an NGO, uh, like a non-profit worldwide organization that uh, takes very much, or at least strike, strives to take into account very much the 
uh, different local context in a, uh, let's say, uh, as you also mentioned, indigenous sovereignty uh, way. Uh, but then still, um, when it comes to certification, to regulation that has to be, it's a, a, a kind of universal, uh, then it's still a bit colonizing, right? Or What does it mean even universal? What is universal? Is it the European standards, standards from the well, global north? Uh, you're nailing it. <laughs> That's the <laughs> narrative, you know, like the narrative yeah. universe. Like, you know, like uh, the, 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 the situation that we are trapped into at the moment, and it's very uncomfortable because, I mean, I, I live in Europe and I'm very grateful of, you know, like uh, of living in a place where I, I, I can go out and not be killed by a lost bullet. I feel you. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like the, the prevalent narrative uh, today is that European values are the highest values that any society needs to aspire to. And a big disconnect in uh, the so-called European values and walking the talk. And uh, walking, the, walking the talk beyond yeah. European yeah. Uh, borders and even within European borders. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about universal values, uh, and or we, when we think about, you know, like a, 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 one of the things of, you know, a colonizing by regulation, you know, like, an, and there's uh, this analogy of uh, you're either a rule maker or a rule taker. And it seems that, uh, that Europe has like, you know, found Uh, Europe, and mo mostly the West, but in this case, Europe, like, because it has been like a, a well-crafted PR exercise around how excellent they are, like, you know, like how, how on these European values that should be like, you know, the dominant values of technology. And uh, I, I tell you what is a European value. A European value is that there's a vaccine or a medicine ready to save people's lives and a refusal of the very, uh, from the very heart of Europe for those vaccines to be like, you know, for a compulsory license that includes compensation to be used, to be issued to save millions of lives in the global south. So if we, if we are applying that kind of, and that's legal, that's absolutely legal, is the mm. right of when we talk about patents. Uh, and it is similar to many other things, you know, like uh, it is it is uh, a way like, you know, uh, food regulation that is very, like, you know, that was a lot of a very tense issue in, in the negotiations when they when they with the creation of the uh, European Union is destroying local food markets, affecting lots of women uh, in the countries that uh, signed uh Uh, trade agreements with the European Union. So it, it is like it is imposition of things that benefit economically a block, an economic block, basically. Yeah. And so, and so, of course, my country, like, you know, it, it happened similar uh, with the US and copyright. Uh, a little country with, you know, like 35%, if not more of the population cannot read or write still, you know, 2023. Uh, had to dedicate a lot of resources for copyright enforcement, you know, like, <laughs> it, it is, it is just, you know, like, it, it is, uh, my opinion on this, uh, on these standards is, uh, is that it takes a lot of resources to be at the table. Usually standard, standardizing is a way to, uh, to make the things cheaper mm. for the powerful actors on it. And, and, Usually, like, you know, like the most valuable things of, of standards would really be like interoperability and miss uh, interoperability of just these exceptions, you know, like, okay, we are going to share if we have a good discovery that's going to make a breakthrough in, uh, and that's going to improve substantially the lives of everybody. There's a plain exception of, of the general rule of profit and uh, national interest before, like, you know, universal interest mm. and not applying. So uh, I do not want to, like, you know, like, uh, of course, uh, dismiss the efforts of well-intentioned people uh, working on, on this. But uh, uh, the, I think that 
there's the standards and standards and there's uh, um, with these uh, wishy-washy like not really clear norms mm-hmm. on 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 AI. I, I am cautious because it is not. I mean, uh, as uh, it's not science basis. It's not it, so many times. You know, it's not something that would be like. Um, I don't know. Like for example, it would be amazing to have a global standard on. Uh, the way we even create social networks so it is as interoperable as the mail, as a physical mail, you know. Mm. Uh, But uh, we are not talking many times uh, of this. We are talking about a real politicization and a fragmentation of the world into into two blocks and countries in the global south being forced to choose. It's a, a push to yet reduce the, the sphere of action and the sphere of decision of, of, uh, of countries that are not dominating the AI race and other technological races. Yeah, that's, I, I would totally agree with and you. You know, like, um, if we think about the role of the United Nations, for example, um, uh, after Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon, open, open, like, truly open up and then, and then Guterres has been like absolutely open the possibility of corporations to sitting at the table of the norm making. Mm. A huge mistake. Because of course they needed more money and they, they didn't have enough budgets. So, you know, inviting corporations from two, three countries to design health interventions, to design what the future of education will look like to design uh, how refugee camps will be like administrated because they put the money, but they put money that is like not insignificant compared to the returns that they have on that money. Hmm. And I had the experience, I have a couple of experiences, you know, like that where, you know, like uh, people that should be like neutral, mm-hmm. working for an organization, working for universal values, uh, uh, were given even a louder voice to corporations than to states. And states, then they, like with, with our imperfect democracies and, and, and societies, represent the people. Mm. And so the profit was given a louder voice than people. And, and you know, like, uh, and what, what, it, what it has become is like the proliferation of a, a um, standard making and norm making bodies. I mean, we have. Now, uh, things like the OECD, you know, like that, why, why, uh, uh, and, and other, uh, other spaces dictating norms uh, by people who are not like, you know, like uh, accountable or elected, elected democratically. Like there's no way to even open up those processes because those processes are like private to a huge extent. And and so that's that, that's the reality. But I want to call to your attention different way of doing standards, and it's community standards. Yeah. If we think of the, all the magic of free software, for example, if we think of the emerging communities of data standardization, of schemas that we can, like you know, uh, push from bottom up to be adopted, that's where, like you know, my hope. My um, hope leaves. We have at the Open Knowledge Foundation uh, a project called Frictionless Data. Mm-hmm. That it is, it is very simple. You know, like it's very simple ways to agree as a community on how to make data talk to each other, so we can make uh, research reproducible, we can make uh, uh, data interoperable, and we can make things like uh, 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 things like such as identifying bias is easier to tackle because you are like uh, uh, we are also working on metadata standards hmm. that will like enable us to describe the data sets in a, in a way that we will understand where the biases are. Hmm. So I think that you know like uh, the community, the re-empowering communities and reconnecting communities with uh, a meaningful side of the knowledge where they are like you know like shapers, architects, uh, norm makers instead of norm takers and bring their experience to the table is, is the way that I see, I see going forward. Renata, um, this is uh, just so inspiring. And uh, if that's okay with you, um, we would 
also like uh, you know uh, dress a little bit more a personal uh, level because this podcast was partly created because the three of us in our working lives are you know surrounded by men basically and so we found this space you know to have an exchange also from a um, different perspective we also all have a, a migrant background and so part of our conversation sometimes turns around like how to voice our perspectives and uh, so I was just wondering what does your daily life look like are you also you know but in what what kind of teams do you work and how is it for you because uh, it's always amazing to see you know how much visibility your work gets but how do you do that I mean I, I guess it has been you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, This uh, this podcast, to be honest, it feels like uh, having coffee with my best friends. <laughs> and, and it is it is so nice, you know, like to be. I think that I think that a formula for younger girls and women, uh, especially from migrant background, is like to be curious and to be like you know like uh, connect with uh, with people. Uh, completely different from you. Like, you know, like uh, some of the mistakes, not mistakes, but a different approach that many um, migrant communities make is uh, they, they hang out with people from their language, from similarly, you know, cultural background, similar education background. And through my life, you know, I was fascinated by difference. Mm. And I was and I was always trying to hang out with people completely different than me. And I do it up to this day. And I, I have found in my female friends and, and my diversely gendered friends a source of inspiration and strength that I didn't find anywhere else in the, in the informal uh, spaces of life. And, you know, like, uh, I remember, you know, my early days of the internet, like, you know, all the Latin American community will be like, but Renata, you're never hanging out with you, with us. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I, I mean, I had like, you know, two decades of my life living among you. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I totally know, know this. To use each and every moment of a, any international interaction to discover the world, like, you know, through discovering the people. And so, you know, like it, it is uh, in my daily life and in my daily practice, I am, uh, um, and, and that then you realize, and I came to that realization when I was in my early 30s of, oh my God, yes, my crowd is very diverse in nations, but they're like a, mostly like, you know, lawyers and techies from privileged <laughs> backgrounds, okay, from the global south, but, you know, like uh, we are not precisely, you know, like uh, living the realities of our people mm. so so you know like it's also the discipline to looking around and to uh, being chatty even if he, if even if it's as he, when, when i was in london was highly unwelcome <laughs> <laughs> smiling to strangers being chatty to strangers and trying to like you know like in in every experience of the life you know like i i don't do much of my things online or mediated by apps i really still like to 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 interact with people And that one thing leads to the other, you know. I think that the more that you open up to others and expose yourself to different ideas and different realities and listen to different things than your bubble, uh, mm. I, I think that, that that shapes you. In I mean, mm. that that's my kind of life hack, you know. Like uh, conversations with strangers had led to amazing opportunities and lessons in life, and also like you know like actively listening to uh the to and sharing views with people completely from completely different like you know countries and backgrounds is also useful and uh yeah and uh, yeah. the corridors uh, that's always the most imp most exciting part of uh and randomness randomness uh, also i i like you know like that's why i i in this podcast i made like point against geolocation meant several times Because I come from a very small place, you know, like, <laughs> and all I wanted to do was to, to get out and see the world. And I, I hate that we are shaping technologies to send us back home by default. Uh, so, yeah, that, 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 that's it. And, you know, like, and being generous, sharing your knowledge and sharing your contacts. 
and sharing your mistakes as well with others, <laughs> showing the vulnerable side. I think that it's also, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. And as you reach certain age, like my age, you realize that the blocks for leadership and the blocks for, like, you know, you, uh, uh, you you hit, you know, you hit a, a place and, and then you realize that uh, going upper is difficult and that there's real limitations on being a, a woman in the way that the, the society is structured. But it, it, it is less painful or less bitter if you are surrounded by, by amazing people who will, yeah. like, you know, be with you in difficult moments. Yeah. I wanted to, to ask... Um, you how did you decide to become a lawyer actually is it a tradition in your family or no, 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 no. <laughs> it is, it is, it's actually something that is uh it, i discuss uh, i i co-wrote a, a book uh, called women whistleblowing wikileaks with angela richter and sarah harrison yes mm -hmm. and it is uh, it is you know, like available if you know Uh, silent libraries, you will find it digitally, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like uh, it's, it's around. And actually I describe, I tell the whole story there, but basically like, you know, like uh, nobody in my family is, uh, is a lawyer. Like, uh, and my mom is a woman in science, you know, unless she's an engineer. Mm -hmm. And when I communicated her my desire to become a lawyer, she was utterly disappointed. And she's mm. like, but, but that's a waste. Mm. That's so easy. <laughs> like, you know, like the, the way that, uh, you know, people in science disregards people mm. in humanities. <laughs> and it's so easy, but why? 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 And, 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 and then I told, I told my grandpa, and he's like, but everybody hates lawyers. What about the economy? Mm. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it, was, it was very funny, but I, I decided that, you know, like I decided, uh, it was very inspired, like romantically, mm -hmm. very, very funny story. I was very inspired by the Zapatista revolution in Mexico mm. and, and the Comandante Marcos, you know, like in all of this, mm. like, you know, like the idea of uh, being like the defender, like what, what I wanted to work at the time in was international humanitarian law. Hmm. So, you know, uh, for, I, I'm a firm believer in diplomacy and negotiation of conflicts. So I wanted to do that as life. You know, I, I wanted to go to the epicenter of chaos and try to uh, prevent the situations that we have seen in many countries today, pre prevent uh, wars, basically. Hmm. Uh, I did. I follow a very different path, you know, like but that was my, uh, my original inspiration. And I found, uh, for those who are studying law, you know, like uh, it is a very versatile career that can take you to so many places. It, uh, it, uh, it is not like, you know, that is written on your destiny to be a boring law firm. Uh, but you can be in a fun law firm as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can find different ways of shaping uh, what you do next after law mm. school. It helps you to argue, to understand how to argue, to listen to the different point. It gives you a good historical background of humanity at, at the worst moments. And it also gives you some structure. So I'm, I'm quite happy yeah. with uh, the decision, yeah. I have to I have to uh, to say that it took me a while to understand this. I was also very like uh, judgy upon the, the people that uh, studied mm -hmm. uh, in law schools and um, uh, but I think you're really really right and uh, especially after I um, got to know your work um, I realized what if you really want and especially also at the Weizenbaum Institute I would say I realized that lawyers have a, a real power to change uh, things much more than Uh, maybe others. We um, just have to make them our ally, allies, no? Yeah, the, yeah. So we have to infiltrate <laughs> <laughs> our husbands. <laughs> Renata, we will come to a wrap up. Um, I think, um, but not before I, I explain this uh, picture of the broken house I mentioned at the beginning of uh, this episode, uh, this recording. 
because it, it was really strong and a lot of uh, um, colleagues that attended a conference still come to me and 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 uh, <laughs> remember this picture of the broken house that uh, we are in a social Renata you said that we are in a broken house uh, that we tried everybody tries to fix like the internet is a broken house right everybody tries to fix something fix there and fix there and we go in with the helmets uh, on our head because we know that it might you know <laughs> hit, crash uh, on our crash head something on our head and what are we doing now uh, we invite even our kids our children to <laughs> enter this broken house you know and it's it's powerful it's really um uh, but as lena also said you then after that offered so much you know uh, optimism and power how to like just um rip it off the whole house and build something beautiful and new <laughs> that we were pretty pretty optimistic uh, after your uh, uh, excellent keynote Yeah, that was um, something that I will still remember. And with a lot of different people living in that house, huh? With a lot of diversity and different voices. Yeah. That's a nice vision to have. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think that it's already happening, you know, like uh, it's already happening. It might be like invisible to us. I mean, that's another topic for another occasion, you know, the uh, this generational disconnect. But I think that soon we will see the emergence of this, you know, collection of different buildings and houses and, and communes even yeah. of the technology of the future. I see it coming, you know, like I, I see that I, I, I think that this big shakeup of big tech this year and how they are like a little bit into crisis yeah. is an excellent opportunity for exploring the possibilities of something new and taking the step out. Wow. That was just the perfect ending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We don't need to edit anything in this episode. <laughs> no, that's true. Right. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you.